Hey, I'm Victor Lucas from the Electric Playground, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis, and today we are talking with Victor Lucas from the Electric Playground. For 25 years, Victor Lucas has been running the Electric Playground show. He has interviewed probably hundreds of developers. He's probably reviewed thousands of games. He has covered more facets of this industry than you can probably imagine. I found this interview to be hugely insightful on covering topics like how traditional media and journalism sort of interfaces with game developers, the history of that relationship, how content creation platforms like Twitch and YouTube have sort of fundamentally challenged that relationship and, and given rise and voice to a huge new audience of, shall we call them citizen journalists, the pros and the cons of that. Victor has a ton to say about game development as an art form, game developers as creators with voices worthy of attention. He is a strong ally and supporter of the craft of game development. I found speaking to him to be insightful, motivating, somehow redeeming, and just all around a real joy. If you find the questions related to media, content creators, game development, and how they all interplay interesting, I think this is a podcast episode and an interview that you will really enjoy. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Victor Lucas from Electric Playground. All right, let's jump in. Well, first of all, Victor, nice to see you again. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Maybe maybe I'll just open up uh, a little bit explaining how we know each other. So, so obviously, I have a career in games now lasting about 20 years. In that time, I spent a decent chunk of time at Ubisoft, uh, a decent chunk of time at Warner Brothers, And certainly during the Warner Brothers era, but I think possibly also at the Ubisoft era, you and I exchanged on multiple occasions, usually with you as the sort of quote-unquote media talking to me as the quote-unquote developer about, you know, the game in question, whether that be the Prince of Persia games or possibly some of the stuff I did with Assassin's Creed, but certainly when Eric Holmes and I were working together on the Batman Arkham series, I know you and I, you know, you and I talked a bunch. So we've known each other for some time, but we also haven't had a chance to talk in a few years. And a lot has changed in those years (laughs) in the industry and in our lives. So just as a personal aside, it's wonderful to have a chance to to chat with you again. Uh, This is wild, man. I always enjoy our conversations and I don't know how you always stay so goddamn young. How do you do that? Oh, you know, good genes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, half your life, it's a curse. And then I guess at some point in time, you hit that fateful age where it starts to become a blessing. I'm pretty sure I hit that a couple of years ago. <laughs> I used to hate it when people said that I looked young because it meant I couldn't get into bars and get drinks. And I still got carded when I was in the States, even in my 30s. Yeah. I don't mind it so much anymore. There are worse <laughs> things in the world than having people tell me I look young. That's a point of pride, my friend. That's go. fantastic. Yeah. I, re- I remember literally like I was like 30 something and I got carded at a bar, you know, trying to order a glass of wine. And I, it, it, it honestly made my day. Like I was super happy. I was like, <laughs> yes, I can still pass. <laughs> well, uh, you know, video games definitely keep you young. That's right. It's all it's all the games. It's all the it games. It is. Because it's yes. certainly not having three kids. No. No, that will age you quickly. And that's another thing that's impressive about how you hold it all together, Ben. Well, I have a very strong support network. My wife's amazing. My mother, my father-in-law live in the area. I'm, you know, blessed, lucky, whatever you want to call it, to have three, you know, relatively functional children who don't try too hard to make my life difficult. So it helps to have the deck stacked in your favor. <laughs> my um, my reflex muscles here are to start quizzing you about all this stuff. But No, uh, no, this is the other way around. <laughs> I'm going to be asking the questions this time, Victor. And okay, I'm going to start right. with, speaking of age and long time, you've been covering games 
like, I'm pretty sure forever, right? Like, back <laughs> the to the Adam and Eve era. <laughs> the beginning um, of time, yeah. <laughs> so why don't we open with the sort of quick summary of your career? Like, kind of what got you into games and all of the different ways that you've been involved in the industry? Because you've seen a lot and you've covered a lot. And uh, I want to make sure that the people listening to this sort of understand what perspective you bring as a result of that sort of storied career. Oh, well, thank you. I've been doing this for a long time. I launched uh, Electric Playground in 1995, and I did it as a a way to kind of channel all of my focus and my energy and love for games dating back to the, you know, Atari 2600. I was one of those kids that had to have the game system in his house, and I would have my friends over every weekend, and we'd have you know, long matches on whatever platform, ColecoVision or Vectrex or the Atari computers. And my mom actually threatened to start charging me for electricity because the, the bill was going up every month. And she That's eventually fine as be- long as you can charge your friends, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, she ended up becoming incredibly proud that I did choose this for the career path that I had. But I, I you know, I, I was an actor before I was a TV producer. And I reached a point in my life where it was I had to write down a bunch of ideas about things that I wanted to do for my future because I didn't really like this idea of being an actor kind of beholden to a casting director making decisions about where I was going to go. And I didn't want to be in this kind of limbo state, sort of waiting on the generosity of strangers to kind mm-hmm. of you know guide my fortunes. And so I wrote down a hundred different ideas for potential businesses that I could create in the the one that I isolated m- might have been the most challenging one to actually lift off the ground, but I thought there was no real video game television programming that focused on how this stuff got made and went behind the scenes and met with all these very creative, industrious, ambitious people that were creating these imaginings that were sparking all kinds of joy and passion for players like myself. I, I imagined around Canada and around North America and I thought, okay, well, let's do it. Let's guide it around uh, an Entertainment Tonight slash Siskel and Eber kind of formula. And it was called The Electric Playground. It took me a long time to decide on that name. And then I went pitching. And I started pitching it in 1995 as a TV show. And, and we launched the website that year, went to the first E3, met tons of people that are still my friends and still my contacts in the video game industry there. And just, uh, it kind of just kept rolling from there. I started to have meetings with different broadcasters across North America and also with lots of business leads and marketing folks at different game companies and pulled a bunch of pieces together to be able to launch a first season in 1997 and a second season in 1998. And then it was, you know, we we ruled from like, we had a six month kind of roadway to we got to a point where we got a year kind of roadway. And then eventually Electric Playground partnered with G4 and partnered with Rogers here in Canada. And we got to the point where we had multiple years worth of contracts for creating content. And I was able to scale up the the company. And so we've probably got the largest video archive uh, about the video game industry on earth, I would say. And with the most interviews and, uh, you know, it's afforded me this incredible privilege of being able to travel and meet with just amazingly inspiring individuals that chase windmills and constantly try to engage us and entertain us and push, you know, this medium forward, but I think artistry in general forward with some very interesting uh, perspective and experience. And it's a new day every day. And that's mm-hmm. what's kept me going this entire time. I mean, I just love that I found this path and I've, I feel incredibly grateful that I've been able to be on this path for so long. My next question here was going to be, why do games matter to you? But I almost wonder, well, you can answer that question, right? What do games mean to you? Why after, you know, 30 some years, I guess, or maybe even longer, do you still passionately play and still passionately consume games as a career and as a life passion. An extension of that question is, why do game developers matter to you? And you talked about, you know, how you you find them inspiring and interesting. In, In a further question, I'll dive into the sort of trenches about, you know, some particular stories. But if you want to talk about why you thought the developers and the process of game making was worthy of attention. I don't know. I think that would be interesting as well. Well, 
I was there during the 80s kind of explosion of games, you know? I was there for the launch of the 2600, and I, I remember when there wasn't video games, and then right. arcades had them. And for me, that was a really powerful moment, you know? It was sort of in concert with my mind being blown by Star Wars and Superman the movie and Raiders of the Lost Ark and Tron. All of that stuff was happening as I was being exposed to video games. And I, I was also, I had this really interesting perspective, and I think about it all the time. I, I, ha I lived in uh, Kitsilano in, in Vancouver, BC, which was a great place to grow up. And there was a pool hall that, and Kitsilano is a very Greek-centric neighborhood in Vancouver. Okay. And there was this pool hall where all of these old Greek guys would go and hang out and play backgammon. And they would all just gather around and enjoy their days together, drinking coffee, smoking cigars. And one day, a Pac-Man machine came into this <laughs> place. And I freaked out for it. I think they had Space Invaders and a couple of other ones in there too, and they were popular, but Pac-Man was something else. It was a sit-down Pac-Man. And I sat down, plopped my quarter in, and started to play it, and started to learn the machine, got you know, got past a few screens. I was never amazing at it, but I started to do, I think, a little bit better than most of the other players in that particular pool hall. And I kept playing, and I was getting past it, and I, I was passing screens, and every time you would pass a level, a couple more people would come up to kind of gather Watch. around and, <laughs> yeah, and see what's going on. And then by the time I'd passed, I don't know, I did all right that day or something. I must have passed 10 screens or something. But I looked up, and all of these Greek fishermen guys, within their, well, they were Greek guys with fishermen caps on, had got up from their backgammons, and they were all standing around watching me play Pac-Man. And, wow. it, you know, it was like I had this little, like, chorus of people cheering me on to continue. And that really stuck with me. I mean, I, I recognized there and then also with my interactions with my friends growing up in high school, that games, even when they were just tiny little pixel creations, little square characters and little ball, you know, like pong balls and space invaders, they were having an emotional connection with us. Yeah. All of us. Absolutely. You know, and I was in that moment understanding that. Yeah. And then I became an actor and I tapped into the passions uh, of games all the time. Like I escaped into games while I was in school and while I was traveling as a professional actor. And when I was working, I would spend money on games and I would, you know, harness emotions from games. And I remember bringing this up in class in, in acting school that, you know, they asked what emotions I tapped into. And I said, well, I was playing this thing last night. And it was driving me crazy. And I just thought about that. And that's where I channeled all this heat and fury and everybody in the class laughed, but it was authentic. It was real. And so that was my that was my pitch in the concept of electric playground. It's like this is stuff that it, it impacts us emotionally already. And what's about to happen is this revolution in 3D development. And we're gonna get closer and closer to playing real-time Pixar style animation. And people are gonna be building art that is gonna blow us away. And just as the PlayStation was launching and, you know, you could open up an Edge magazine and you could show people how beautiful games were becoming. Not that pixel stuff wasn't beautiful, but it was a whole other level when you started talking about 3D polygons <clears throat> and you could show people Super Mario 64. And so all of that was a, a huge catalyst. But in, you know, my fascination through all that, I was also reading all the magazines, all the, you know. Absolutely. Uh, the Game Informers, the Edges. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. But even before that, there was like video. I can't even oh, remember Nintendo all the names. Power and <laughs> no, even before that. Even there before was like, that, okay. <laughs> now I'll just let you talk. You go ahead. <laughs> well, I remember Antic was one of them. It was like the big Atari one, and there was video games and and computer entertainment. I have stacks of these oh, yes, mags from the eighties. I remember. And they would interview developers every once in a while. And I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. But I still didn't know how games were made. And that's really what it was. It was like, right. okay, I've been playing forever, but I don't know how this stuff gets made. And I don't know. And I'm a devout follower of this church. You know, right. I pay. A, I was spending $300 a month on games, and I was buying every magazine and, and just devouring it as a consumer, as a fan. And I thought, if I don't know, then the whole world doesn't know. And so that is the crux of what Electric Playground is going to be about. It's going to go out to these studios, you know, not so much to make everybody celebrities, but definitely to put the spotlight on these creative individuals that, you know, oftentimes, you know, I know now in, in retrospect and after getting to know tons of developers over the years, they don't even know what they're trying to make yet. You know, sure. they're, they're still slicing away at their sculpture, you know, 
cracking at the rock, taking pieces off, trying to figure it out. But it's that art. It's the yeah. act of that is so fascinating and so worth discussing and highlighting. And uh, yes, I've always found that incredibly inspiring, you know, and I've met you know, tons of incredible creative people in this industry and had wonderful conversations based off of that. So then let's, so that's awesome. And I mean, as you know, someone who has spent his, you know, more or less his career making games, I, I can say it's wonderful to hear people talk about the artistry. And granted, it is a very different form of artistry. It's much more about sort of discovering the art in many cases, sort of iterating your way towards the art. And of course, it's generally speaking, very collective. It's a very collective process. So it's yes. almost like a dance troupe trying to kind of discover their choreography asynchronously. It, it, it's a really sort of interesting kind of art, but it is lovely to hear people talk about it as art rather than just business or pure entertainment. So, you know, thanks yeah. for that. And you talk about these moments, you know, these wonderful conversations and the people that you've met. And I know that you could spend the entire podcast just talking about that. But if you had to pick like two standout moments from the trenches, mm. meetings that you had or interviews or conferences that really stuck with you, sort of like your electric playground version of, you know, that those, those Mario the, sorry, the Greek fisherman and Pac-Man moment. <laughs> Could you pick a couple of them? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think meeting Shigeru Miyamoto, you know, I think it was an early E3. I met him for the first time. I think it could have been like, it, I, I might have met him at E3. No, it wouldn't have been 95 because I had a camera right there with me. And I, at E3 95, we only had a camera for a, like four hours of a couple of days or something like that. But I met him early and I hustled, I knew who he was and I hustled to the front of, after he had done a, a, a Nintendo stage presentation, I hustled in front of all of these other journalists and I had my microphone out and my camera out. And we, that was kind of unique at that time. You know, there weren't too many cameras, believe it or not, at E3 in the mid nineties. And we did have that. And I got, you know, many a, from other right. print what journalists going, doing? yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I got, I got some questions in with Shigeru Miyamoto and he was lovely and, and incredibly inspiring. And then I've worked with Nintendo several times after that to get some really nice one-on-ones with him. And mm -hmm. I'm always grateful for that. And one thing that I always remember too, is meeting up with Richard Garriott, you know, the creator of the Ultima series, when he was building Ultima Online at Origin in Austin, owned by Electronic Arts. And that was a really wonderful facility. And it was, you know, they were making Wing Commander and all kinds of other cool things down there. And it was always fun to go there. But I had a really long discussion with him. My cameraman was not happy because he was holding this heavy camera on his shoulder. And, you know, I was still kind of finding my way as a the conversationalist in in games media or in media in general and an interviewer. And even though we would cut down some of these conversations to quick, you know, three minute pieces in our show, I still wanted to almost have like a podcast style conversation. Yeah, dive deep. <clears throat> yeah. And get to know them. And it wasn't from a place and this is, tr you know, I wasn't a PC gamer. I wasn't a, an Ultima diehard or a purist, but of course I did some studying up on the franchise and the history. And I was just genuinely curious and we had a great conversation mm. and um, it ended up in one of our early seasons, a chunk of it. And, but at the end of it, he was just really appreciative. He was very grateful. And he oh, said, that was the best interview I've ever had. And uh, you asked amazing questions. And, you know, he, he was an already a legendary figure in the video game industry, just sort of and I, it was so early in my career and I just, it was really wonderful to hear that feedback that I was on a path that people appreciated. And honestly, man, that, that's what I, that's what I pushed out to the developers that I always spoke with. I said that if, if we make a show that you guys don't watch or don't like, then right. we failed because yeah. this is for you. This is what we're doing this for. We're doing it for you. Like we know that fans of this space will probably be curious, but if developers are embarrassed or they don't like it, then we didn't succeed, but they did, you know, and we launched in uh, 97 in a bunch of different markets. We didn't have like a national play. We kind of self-syndicated across North America. One of our channels was in San Francisco. It was KBHK. I think it was like a UPN affiliate back then. And we did, I think we were number one in our time slot on the weekend. We had like a weekend at, I don't know, 11 a.m. or something like that. But I knew that it was 
all the Bay Area developers that were tuning right, in and right. watching it. And <laughs> That's it, and an it, important it, market, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was really validating, you know, yeah. it was really cool. The the Ultima Online Richard Garriott story speaks to me in a, a few ways. I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, in many ways, I owe my career to Ultima Online. I think awesome. that's safe to say. I think I owe a lot of the mechanics and the sort of things that I look for in the games that I play in the games that I make very much to some of the design ethos of Ultima Online. Wow. Richard Garriott, Raf Coster, Starlong. If any of you guys are listening, I'd love to have you on the podcast. <laughs> uh, I love that game. I was there. I was there when Lord British died. Wow. I was standing right beside Reigns when he grabbed the explosion potion or whatever it was and launched it up on the castle and set Lord British on fire. Um, oh my God. <laughs> yep. I was part of the beta. I had an online gaming guild. We had like a hundred people in the beta. I mean, that game was hugely influential in my life. Oh, wow. Um, well, but I I'll, also absolutely... I'll reach out to the the folks that I know that still talk with Richard all the time and I'll try to help set that up, man. Okay, I cool. think you, you should have that conversation with him for sure. That would be so fun. That would be awesome. But I also really hear what you're saying about, you know, asking interesting questions. Uh, and, you know, I, I would say... You know, Victor, from a developer point of view, you always ask very interesting questions. So I don't think it was just, I don't think it was just in that one interview. And and hopefully in this podcast, you know, I can return the favor and I can ask you some more interesting questions. <laughs> it's always, it always comes from a place, I mean, this is what I've discovered, you know, you, it comes from a place of hearing what the other person is saying and rolling with it and, and just being genuinely curious, you know, like having the, the ability to be in that moment and just you know, even if it takes a little while to find those words, but to make them real, you know, yeah. and have that conversation be a real yeah, thing. And be able to be flexible and kind of take the conversation in different yeah. directions and whatnot. Yes. So I have three questions here, which all sort of center around this idea of games journalism, right? Right. Once upon a time, you know, I'd make a game and, for example, you or your colleagues would review that game and say, hopefully this game was awesome and you should buy it. And fans would download the game. Actually, they'd probably buy the game in a store and then they would you know, play it. And if they hated it, they would yell at me and then that process would continue. And obviously, things have shifted significantly. And I would say... We see an era today where, you know, what I would call maybe the specialized press is less present, not less present. Yeah, it, well, there's more, quote unquote, media out there because anyone with a podcast and a microphone any, or anyone with a webcam and a microphone can review a game and talk about games. And so there's infinite opportunities now for opinions, some obviously more informed than others. And so I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit about sort of your perception on the shifting landscape of games and gaming media and entertainment media as a whole. And definitely where it's going is going to tie into this point you just made about this sort of, you know, game as a service, in fact, probably more game as a platform or subscription of games as a platform, the Netflix of games, as it were. And then how do you see the role of this huge thing called games media? How do you see that fitting into a world of, of a sort of subscription platform for games, like a Netflix of games? So it's a big question. Yeah. Take the parts of it that are the most interesting to you and, and just go to town. Well, I, you know, I think a, a lot of the structure around media, and this doesn't just pertain to games media, has been about the, the you know, historically has been that it, it the... the ability for anyone to be able to do that was very constrained. You know, you needed to go to school, you needed to train up, you needed to get good equipment, you needed to break, you needed the opportunity to kind of find a way to get your voice out there. All of that has been completely democratized now, mm -hmm. thanks to YouTube and Twitch and lots of other platforms out there. And so that is definitely the rise of the, the citizen journalist and the, you know, the vocal majority out there and everybody has a platform. And obviously, 
advertising dollars have shifted to these aggregators, you know, people that have been able to just take a lot of this popular voice for good or for bad and monetize it on data, but also on just sheer amounts of content being generated. And that's made it a very tricky minefield for every media organization, you know, and that's why you see The Guardian and New York Times and The Verge, everybody's got a would you support independent journalism? Would you, Absolutely. you know, everybody's got that button on their website. And I think that we're not in the final form of what this all means. I think that we're in a moment of, we're like cats playing with this cool, shiny toy right Batting now. Batting it around. Yeah. We're like trying to figure out how we properly use Twitter and YouTube and Twitch. And YouTube is still trying to figure out how they properly use YouTube, you know? They, there is this apathetic hands-off approach to content cura- curation or re- really spending in a direction because it would anger uh, content creators from one sector or another, you know, whether they work with traditional media, quote unquote, traditional media, or they work with their highest viewed channels who may be highly viewed because their whole thing is that they kick each other in the balls for hours on hour. You know, like it's true idiocracy. There's so much content right there. (laughs) There's so much garbage content out there. How come you don't have no tattoo? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I, I, I feel that in the absence of, for you know, like well produced, solidly constructed content that is aware of people's time and intelligence, there exists this opportunity to find that path again, Mm -hmm. you know? And what's happening, I think, is we're seeing a lot of uh, the television, the traditional television industry and the traditional media industries that became bloated, you know, Mm -hmm. because of their opportunity to exist in this beautific reality of, of scarcity, that they didn't have real competition out there. And so they could charge exorbitant rates and, you know, pay people a lot of money and some of it deserved, some of it arguable, but everybody has been dealing with that. Whether you're in the television industry, you're in the magazine business, the radio industry, everybody's been dealing with the fact that there's just this explosion of interesting discussion going on out there that we just, as a human with 24 hours to live, don't have time to consume all of it. And, but- we're also becoming much more sophisticated with our um, selections and the amount of time that we give to our, you know, various media intersections. And so I think that there is going to be this opportunity to build again, but using some relatively low cost distribution mechanisms, as we're seeing with groups like Kind of Funny or Easy Allies, banded together around Patreon and the fan bases that they have. And it's fascinating to see the influence and the reach that they have, which Mm -hmm. may not be equitable to something like an IGN, which has all of these aggregate numbers and affiliates across the world and a massive staff and an incredibly developed search engine optimization and, and data tracking branch of people within their organization. You know, kind of funny and easy allies aren't like that, but it is amazing to see that their voices are incredibly important out there, you know? And what I see through that from my own viewpoint is like, we had this kind of very unique position of being a televised voice, and we were also on the internet, but there weren't a lot of other players out there like the Electric Playground, you know? We had this really interesting opportunity out there. And we were kind of... you know, chained a little bit to what traditional media was doing around this space. So we couldn't adapt and deliver our content to the minute that we would hit the airwaves on television, on YouTube, or any other emerging video platforms on the internet at that time. We had to kind of have this secondary window, like a week long after a week of airtime, we could put our show on on right. the internet based on our contracts. But had we been developing that right now, I would have done something similar with the group of incredible people that I'd been able to assemble through Electric Playground as Easy Allies or as uh, Kind of Funny did. We would have been everywhere with the content. And so, you know, when you ask what the future of journalism is, what the future of games journalism is, I think information is free. And it's shared and it's instant and it needs to be everywhere. And I think that 
if you are, you know, working for a vertical, a media vertical, and you have any gatekeeping kind of sensibility around the output of information, you are failing at your job. You are failing. You need to be accessing everyone everywhere. And if you have a budget, you need to take advantage of that budget and utilize the skills to reach people where they are, not ask people to come to you because those days are done. And I, you know, very interesting. And so, and I think that's exactly what's wrong with television right now. I think that, you know, you, you know, over the, the past four years, go figure, I became a voracious consumer of political news out of the US. And I would, you know, watch CNN clips and MSNBC clips every once in a while, the other side. But the way that they carved up their content on YouTube was abysmal. You know, the CNN yeah. stuff was out of sync. It would clip out in, in the middle of a conversation. MSNBC was a little bit more prolific, but they still have a terrible job at, do a terrible job at timing out their video pieces. You know, it's like they'll just stop at minute 245 and somebody's about to answer something and they'll just cut out to the, you should sign up for our YouTube. And it's just ridiculous, you know, and these are massive organizations, let alone the small fries out there that are, you know, putting their cups out and saying, please support us and hit our Patreon and all that. And so, so my point then, is like, you got to be everywhere with this stuff. And so is it safe to say, it sounds to me like in some ways, what you're saying is that people who create their voice yeah. with the new tools have, you know, whatever, an advantage over the people who are trying to shoehorn in their existing platform into those tools. So is that a fair summary? There's an advantage on either side, and there needs to be more meeting in the middle. There needs, to be, there needs to be better quality that's more aware of everybody's busy life, because mm -hmm. I think that's the problem yeah. with a lot of internet content, is that it just goes on forever. Yeah. And I don't have time to watch or listen to all of it. And I don't think anybody else, I can't even keep up with the the geeky shows that I want to watch, you yeah. know? Like I'm just catching up on The Expanse right now. Yeah, me too. I haven't even made it through season one. I think they're going to take away my nerd card. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, that's the thing. We are living in this, and, and it's something that's definitely hitting me as a YouTube content creator too, you know? Because I, you asked about reviews and- Reviews, I think, are still very important, and they exist in a way that they always have as a way of affirming a choice, less about guiding a person to the, a choice. Usually, I th and I, this is the way that I, as a huge consumer of games, would read those video game magazines in the 80s and the 90s. I would go, well, I bought that game already, and this reviewer agrees with me. I made the right choice. And I think a lot of people consume reviews that way, and they want your thoughts on something that they're already fans of, it's less about exposing people to that content. That does happen. And honestly, the platform of television, that happened more than we were given credit for. You know, I think that the video game industry was really, A, the video game industry should never had let G4 die, ever. They should have been there with sponsor dollars and done everything they could to work with Comcast to keep that network rocking and rolling. They should not have said, Let's throw all of our marketing money at Twitch and YouTube and just get behind influencers. And that's the way we're going to spread the word on things and give that all of the power to these individuals who are all, you know, there's some great work out there for sure. But every one of those unique influencers was trying to build a brand around themselves and build a media empire around themselves rather than sort of earning it and earning that relationship with the companies that they're beholden to build their content, you know? And consequently, we've seen a lot of these influencers either lose relationships, lose focus, lose their minds, <laughs> lose their audience, lose their desire, or, you know, take th their real s emerging new celebrity and just go off in a totally different direction, thereby not serving the real needs of helping some of these marketing companies or marketing marketers at, th at these different publishers out, you know? <clears throat> and I think about G4 and I think... They should have been pivoting their business to be more online-centric at the same time as the game company should have been there to help support them because it was, and I don't know if it will be again, but at the time, it was the closest analogy to an ESPN that the games industry had. You know, it was a brand that anybody, 
even outside of the space could point to and say, well, this is a way into this world, you know, much like ESPN serves. And now what we have is this directionless, multi-pronged, everybody gets little pieces of information everywhere kind of reality, you know? Yeah, for sure there's, it's harder. Truth is everywhere now. There's no yeah. single voice. There's, there's a lot fewer sort of single trusted voices. Right. I, I, I like to say we're not in a post-truth world, we're in a multi-truth world. Because anyone with you know, a fair amount of intelligence and a little bit of background and, and a soapbox can be incredibly convincing. Um, yes, yes. Um, and so you can get, you know, sort of colors of truth from so many different, from so many different sources. Yeah. And we could go deep down that this rabbit hole, but trying to keep it maybe a, a, a step higher, you put your finger on something, this idea that you know, influencers or content creators or whatever we want to call it, they sort of maybe started out as media effectively yep. mm -hmm. and then maybe became content, right? Right, right. So can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, you, I would say, have that challenge. You are media and content. Do you have an affinity for one over the other? Is that a tough balance for you? Can you objectively be media when you're also content? What What are your thoughts about as a content creator, the challenge of trying to juggle those two? Well, I am that, but my whole career has been about being connected to the gaming industry. It hasn't been about, you know, trying to find a voice on and a platform for me. You know, it's right. been as a conduit. I, I think of myself more as an avatar for people that would like to talk with game makers yeah. and developers and go and visit studios and attend events and stuff. I felt like like I was a host, you know, I'm, I'm a host for the the viewer to bring them into this space. And it's less about banging a drum saying, look at me, you know, and honestly, I was, it took me a while to even want to do that on the show, you know, like right. it, it, early on the show, I didn't even really consider myself as a host. You know, it took Tommy, my Tommy Tellerico pushing me to kind of consider myself that way. And Discovery did some, because we used to be on Discovery Science, Discovery did some focus testing and they liked me on camera. And I, I kind of came out of that, my shell, I guess, a little bit, even though I was an actor, it wasn't really about like creating a platform for myself. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. I, I think that's, kind of what YouTube and Twitch is about. It's kind of part of that selfie generation. It's like, look at me, look what I look how smart I am. Look what I can say. Look what I know. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that means of expression is great. And I know that there's lots of hardworking people that that, you know, are a boon to this business and a boon to the commentary and the discovery of interesting perspective and interesting information out there. But I you know, there's also the ugly side of it and and people get lost in their celebrity uh, or what they perceive to be celebrity, and it gets twisted up. And the one thing that I keep coming back to is that, yes, we have tons and tons of voices out there around games, but we're losing sight of who makes this business. And it's not content creators. It's not PewDiePie, mm -hmm. you know? It's game makers. And we don't know them. We're back in that point where we don't know them. And And I feel like so much of the channels that are out there are there it's equivalent to the fanzine rush that was happening before the magazines really took hold and they became a little bit more professional it's like we have you know th hundreds of thousands of video fa fanzines out there with right. uh, lots of experts and the other side of it is that youtube feeds on negativity as well you know like the internet feeds on it it's it's amazing to me to see the hatred thrown at companies and at people that are, you know, I, some of it, some of that anger justified. I think that sometimes corporately there are decisions made that just ooze greed, you know, mm -hmm. and it's hard to watch those things. And sometimes you can feel the venom and the hatred coming from the players or quote unquote experts out there, you know, trying pretending to fight for the consumer. There's some validity to some of that vitriol. 
But I think a lot of it is done without perspective. And it is that gap, it is that absence that that exists in what we perceive as media right now in this gaming space that troubles me, you know, mm. because I feel like what we're, there's a couple things too. The other thing is our business fascination, our corporate fascination with esports and the, the celebrity culture erupting around that. I think that's a beautiful component of video games. It's equivalent to the sports industry. Absolutely. And I think that's wonderful. But people understand talent, right? It's, yes. They can gravitate to it. They can understand why it has value and they can appreciate the stories around the nurturing and the growing and the sort of celebrating of that talent across totally. any industry. Absolutely. But I think there's a perception on the outside of this, this business, that's the only thing to care about in video games. And okay. so once again, we are losing sight of the blood and soul and the, the heart of what pushes this medium forward. And what I know now in retrospect from having met dozens of people in my career that have thanked me for bringing cameras to studios is that content like ours has influenced lots of people to go and become creators of new content, mm -hmm. creators of new gaming content. And all of it, what's interesting is all of our careers, whether we're independent solo media outlets or massive conglomerates like IGN or, you know, Patreon funded smaller companies that have a loud voice, like kind of funny or easy allies and lots of creators out there. We're all dependent on the development and the nurturing of this medium. And yet we, as a collectively, as a video game industry, we have put the product ahead of the people so much and we're losing sight of it. And we're letting a lot of that hate bubble up to the surface without context, you know, mm -hmm. and without access. Sometimes the, you know, the, on the flip of it is the PR is just so constrained and so machined that people can't let their guard down and talk openly and honestly about stuff. And there's a great level of distrust out there. And, you know, I've had the privilege of being there right from the beginning, you know, and have had incredible access and have profoundly truthful and wonderful relationships and friendships across this industry. And it breaks my heart that we're disconnected a little bit from who's actually building this and how they're making it, you know? And it's not like it's beautific. It's not like it's perfect. It's, it, I know on your end, it's excruciatingly difficult and there are all kinds of internal struggles and corporations dealing with lots and lots of turmoil. But at the heart of it all, this is an art form that is crafted and labored and loved. And, you know, the chasing of windmills continues. And we should be giving more, you know, honest platform to these inventors and letting them take their moment in the sun for what they're attempting to do, which is make the world better. You know, it's not just entertain. They're helping us and look what we've just had, right? Look at how much Absolutely. the world has woken up to how important video games are in a multitude of ways. This was the year that CNN started reaching out to me and asking me to start commenting on the importance of video games this past year. And it yeah. took a pandemic to do it. This year was a huge accelerator <laughs> yeah. for the sort of yes. mass market acceptance or adoption of some of the more positive elements of video games. I would yes. absolutely agree with that. Not just a pastime, not just a distraction. But my last question on media before we change subject and then eventually we'll have to wrap things up is, uh, is hope. Yeah. Do you have hope? Do you have hope less for the industry? Because I hear the optimism there, or not optimism, that's the wrong word. I hear the enthusiasm there. Yeah, yeah. Do you have hope for media, journalism, professional voices refinding their uh, niche inside the maelstrom that is content creation platforms. And do you- I do, do you, okay. I do. And I, you know what I think the secret is gonna be? It's gonna be some kind of mix of subscription and not less about general advertising spots to fill and more about 1950s style show sponsorship. It's going to be more about allegiance and backing good horses, I think, than and and good partnerships that make sense with brands as yeah. opposed to, you know, pay to play, you know, 
media content that's like that's standing in for a commercial i forget what the name is for that stuff i've i've never done that kind of thing that that you know we we're building you an article or a, a segment that looks like it, it's news but sponsored it's sponsored content yeah it's less about that i think it's more about a sponsorship kind of relationship around good brands and i i think it's incumbent on marketers to to choose wiser but i also think that if you and I'm trying to heed my own advice here. If you're in media, you have to kind of stick to your guns on the type of content that you make and be very aware of the material that you're putting out into the world and make it less about that holy grail, like one day I'll hit this X number of subscribers or this X number of sponsors or whatever, and be more savvy with the relationships that you're going to have. But I think eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be a desire for more professionally curated, smartly produced content that doesn't waste people's time. And we're seeing a radical shift away from the traditional sort of media behemoths to these distribution platforms that are much more open for folks, you know, like we're seeing television trying to figure out how they can scramble to keep their audiences and their existing advertiser bases together as people shift more of their viewing habits to Facebook or YouTube or whatever. That's been happening for a a long period. And there's a lot of back and forth between these huge conglomerates working with YouTube and with Facebook. And in the context of that, a lot of citizen journalism has come up and lots of influencers have been able to stake out cool businesses for themselves. But I think the next level is uh, almost taking the kind of funny model or the easy allies model. I keep using those guys, but there's lots of other groups out there, but uh, sort of juicing that up a little bit so that they're less, you know, a gang of friends working together and everybody's helping to make that thing happen and more a little bit leaning in the direction of, in my case, more professional television type content, you right. know, because there there's an absence of that. And I, I've always looked at that absence as being the opportunity. Like there okay. is nothing like electric playground out there right now. And so that's one of the drives for me to get up and do what I do and have the conversations that I have. There is nothing like that out there. There's no regular recurring TV type programming that's visiting studios and getting part of partly it's because of the the pandemic but because there is that absence there exists that opportunity and i think that will be true in music and in cars and you know real estate all of these different areas that have been impacted by this radical shift you know like facebook and youtube and twitch and like they're the owners of all of this sort of aggregate advertising out there yeah. at this point, you know? And so that's taken all the money from the traditional media and they've had to slowly figure out what to do, but because they own all of that stuff and they own these very easy access points, these low barrier to entry distribution points that gives people that desire to be in this business, in the news business, lots of new and interesting avenues and, and opportunities. Hear that, kids? There is something you can learn from your parents' <laughs> television shows. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm still developing those answers myself. Oh, but. dude, I hear you, man. It's not obvious or easy, but I think you're right. I think there's, you know, as is always the case, right? There's going to be a little from column, a little bit from column B with a dash of the future and a little bit of innovation tossed all up together. And then some new thing is going to evolve out of that. And then, you know, the whole process will continue. Yeah. And I, I guess think, like, I think so, the core okay. of it though, with information though, it, it really, you cannot, like you're going to be quoted or copied or stolen from if you're putting out information. Yes. So if you're doing that and you have a budget, you need to get ahead of it. So if someone gave me a budget to build my team right now and put us back on TV or whatever, it would have to come with the caveat that we're putting it everywhere. Yes. It's going everywhere. So if I was partnered with anybody that would be the only way I would do it. I wouldn't say, oh, sure, you can. it can be exclusive here. Because that's, your business is going to be out of business soon and no one is going to see it. So put it everywhere and then make sure that there's, you know, people are attributing that source of information to your work and your brand. And that's how you do it, you know? 
let's let's end on a whatever future looking note. Let's end on a note tying deeply into your enthusiasm and passion for the whole ecosystem. Really, clearly it's everything from indie games to large corporate games to the, you know, whatever media, the professional media that covers it to the content creators that cover it to the platforms, to the networks. Clearly you have enthusiasm and interest in the entire thing. Yeah. So what trends today, again, Mm. choose one or two, what trends in gaming? And I, you know, so that can mean kind of almost anything. (laughs) Are you the most excited about? What's going on now that you think is laying the foundation for this exciting future we're all going to be living in five years as it relates to sort of gaming and entertainment? Uh, I think it's Game Pass. I think it's I think it's Xbox Game Pass. I think that they're doing a great job at shining a spotlight on indie games that maybe wouldn't have a lot of attention. Part of it, I think, is that they aren't huge yet. You know, part yeah. of it is that it's 100 games. It's not 10,000 games. Yep. And it will get to that. I mean, my whole career has been about getting more people to pay attention to this business, you know, and to take it seriously, to take this art form with and to show it respect. And the biggest complaint and the biggest sort of pushback I've always received about games is the intimidation of where do you begin and how do you enter into this space and what do I play or I'm not good at games or just for this X kind of uh, consumer or this category. And mobile, I think, broke down a lot of those barriers. But, you know, and there's a lot of good stuff in mobile. And, you know, all of the money and revenue that mobile generates is incredibly inspiring. And it's used in a bunch of really amazing ways. But, you know, I think in general, a lot of the mobile stuff, to me, doesn't represent the stuff that really pushes the medium forward, you know, Mm -hmm. the trailblazing, groundbreaking, like, oh my God, this is how good games can be right now. Stuff like The Last of Us Part Two does, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's a different business and it's a business that I respect Sony on greatly. But why I I love this idea of Game Pass is that it breaks down all of that, you know, it's no longer about a a parent or, you know, a gift giver having to kind of navigate through even an e-store, but let alone a GameStop or an EB Games or something like that. Like I have always put myself in those shoes. It's like, how does somebody that doesn't know anything about games get, it's like they have to choose a clubhouse, you know, it's like they have to choose their favorite team before they know anything about the sport. And that's how the video game industry kind of set itself up. And so when you have a, and that's worked, that the competition between Sega and Nintendo and Sony and Xbox, all of that has worked. The console wars has worked, but it's a much more prolific and sophisticated medium than that trivial way to look at it does it justice, you know? And Xbox Game Pass, I think, kind of flies in the face of all that. It's like, I don't care where, Xbox is like, I don't care where you play our games. You can play them on your PC or your iPhone or your, you know, your tablet or whatever you want to play it on. And, you know, you just know that they're inching towards, now you can play it on the Switch or, hey, guess what? Halo's on on PlayStation, you know? Oh my like, God, you just <laughs> blew my mind. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I know that's going to anger tons of Xbox diehards out there. But if I'm Phil Spencer or Microsoft, they're they're clearly looking at whatever... Netflix has done by partnering with everybody. I mean, they're shaping something in that vein. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's an exciting product, but it's also an exciting future for games. You know, there's this huge kind of philosophy out there around the metaverse that's happening right now where we just have in real life and an online life connected to whatever content we want and like a Ready Player One kind of style reality. Some of that is dystopian, but I think that the idea to access your content wherever you want to is compelling, yeah. you know? And Netflix does that. Games don't quite do that. Xbox is a step in that direction. And I, you know, I know the counter is going to come from PlayStation. I know that they're going to deliver something very similar and then eventually Nintendo will do their own thing. And it will be less about the box and more about where you want to engage and where I you mean, want to and experience And it's interesting, that. you know, obviously you bring game dev game bias to it, right? But, you know, you didn't mention, for example, GE Force Now, 
which yeah. is NVIDIA's kick at that can, or yeah. you did earlier, but just now you didn't necessarily mention, you know, Luna, which is like Facebook's kick at that can. Yeah. Stadia, we know, is has continues to kick at that can, although, you know, they had a little hiccup recently, but I, I don't think anyone's voting them out for the count. And smart money would bet on Amazon, right? Basically, anyone with lots of servers is probably looking at this very seriously and trying to think about, you know, what do they have that they can bring to the table to A, help make them the quote-unquote Netflix of gaming, and B, bring us, you know, a step or two closer to this sort of metaverse future that I agree does feel like it's gained a lot of traction in the last year and a lot of legitimacy as well. And there's a lot of people taking it seriously and actually investing manpower and, and brain power towards this exciting and hopefully, you know, optimistic future of where entertainment is going. Well, the other side of it, too, is that it's, it's a pathway to honoring the past as well. You know, because the video game industry has done a very poor job at that. You know, where, where you think of syndicated television programming from, you know, decades ago that you can still have access to and, and we can always access older film libraries, the video game business. And partially it's because of this console cycle where they package a bunch of games for one system and then the new system comes in, they package the same bunch of games and they sell it again. But we lose the connection to a lot of the history of this business on a continuous basis. You know, every console cycle and every kind of thing that's cut from digital libraries. And eventually, we're going to have a system that's set up that will sort of take us all the way back to the mm. Eugene Jarvis days and let us play some of this stuff. Uh, you know, I'm really tired of talking with game design students and uh, that are making twin stick shooters and they have no idea who Eugene Jarvis is, man. That drives me crazy. It also drives me crazy that nobody knows who Tim Sweeney is, but people know who Ninja is. You know, that's, that's <laughs> I just... I know who Tim Sweeney is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's nuts, right? Like we shouldn't just... As, we, as the game industry should just not accept that, you know? Like, we should have a little bit more kind of consciousness of, of the people that make this material, but also the value of its, of its history, you know? And I had a great conversation with John Linneman and Joe from GameSack about that recently, about this, the subscription stuff and the streaming stuff and the idea that there's latency and those guys are purists. They play on CRTs. John Linneman's over at Digital Foundry. They're great. Like they're diehard classic game players and they play 30-year-old games all the time. And right. they really don't like it when the game companies don't have like a long plan around yeah. this stuff. And that's forget the one or change. two year roadmap. They want the 30 or 40 year roadmap. <laughs> Absolutely. And going back in time, not just forwards in time. Yes, right? And I, I think that's so true. I mean, look at all of the Look at all of the deals that were done on licensed games in the 80s and the 90s, and they're lost to time unless you download the ROM, you know, or you search on eBay or Craigslist or something like that. But they're just lost to time because the rights are crazy. Yeah. And whoever owns the rights to that or the music that's in the game. And that's just incredibly sad, you know. It's just incredibly sad that we have games that are still important and still very playable and still great information and value to a, a new player that they're going to have trouble accessing that stuff. And maybe that's what this subscription future, this metaverse type future that we're moving towards will help to clarify and fix. Maybe. Maybe. I buy it. I, I mean, let's say I think it has a better chance at it than not, right? Than, than what we currently have. Yeah. And I mean, so, okay, so here we go. I'm going to, you've, you've done this for 35 years. I'm going to close out our interview <laughs> today, you know, shining the spotlight back on you. All right. So everyone, this has been a long hour and a half hour long now conversation with Victor Lucas. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who's been in the industry as long as he has and has maintained the enthusiasm that he has, not just for the games that we play not just for the people who talk about the games we play, but also for the people who make the games that we play. If you found this conversation interesting, if you found Victor Lucas insightful, you should absolutely subscribe to him. His content, you can find it, Electric Playground. It should be on everything, everywhere. Otherwise, 
he's lying. <laughs> All right, Victor, I've really appreciated this chat. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, uh, Ben, it was a pleasure, man. Thank you. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Mattis. And today we were talking with Victor Lucas from Electric Playground. You probably got a sense of this from the episode, but we had a ton of other things we could have talked about. Uh, Victor could have gone deep on things like the metaverse, business models, subscription, which is clearly something he's very bullish on, um, subscription platforms, free-to-play games as a service. Uh, there were a lot of other sort of subjects that, that were interesting. If you'd like to hear him and I go deeper on any of this, please don't hesitate to reach out. I can be reached at podcast at rovio.com. Um, love to hear your thoughts and questions about today's episode, any past episodes, or any guests or themes you'd like to hear us explore in the future. Thanks, as always, for listening. We hope you found this episode enjoyable and insightful, and we'll talk to you again really soon.